Hello, uh, Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for your support and welcome to Fatal Error. This week, we thought we would try something in a little bit different style. We don't necessarily have a set topic ahead of time this week. We thought we would just try to have a freeform discussion and see where it goes. Uh, this is something that we had thought for season three, we wanted to try some, some different, uh, some slightly different formats and see how they work for us. And so this is going to be a little bit of an experiment. Yeah, for sure. Especially since, so this, this podcast was kind of born out of, uh, just Chris and I talking anytime we would hang out, we just have like a nice conversation about programming and none of those discussions really ever had topics per se. They just kind of went where they went. And so we're trying to see if we can capture some of that for this as well. So yeah, so maybe a sneak peek at a new episode stuff for you. Uh, awesome Patreon listeners. Yeah. And for, uh, and eventually for non Patreon listeners too, who knows? Yeah, could be. So uh, how are things going? <laughs> things are good. Um, Things are good. The most interesting programming thing that happened to me this week is uh, I have a client who, you know, the, the app needs to be deployed on kind of less than reliable networks. So, you know, spotty Wi-Fi, maybe not that great of 3G. And um, so this is like the app is designed for places uh, in the Middle East, um, Bahrain, Syria, Egypt, as well as like uh, other countries, Nepal, where you might not necessarily be able to have the strongest network connection. Interesting. And so we can't necessarily afford to uh, have the Swift runtime packaged in with the app. So the app has to be all Objective-C. Okay, interesting. I was going to say, like, I already have a number of questions. Like, uh, this is definitely an interesting use case, and there certainly are a lot of of constraints that come along with that deployment scenario that we don't necessarily normally think about, like, front of mind. Uh, But let's go with the constraint that, that that... you've mentioned, which um, Swift runtime is too big to package into the app. Yeah, exactly. Because it's too big, it's got to be all Objective-C, but some of the Swift things that I've gotten so comfortable with don't exist in Objective-C. So for example, um, this app does a lot of stuff with Firebase, and uh, there's a part where we have to upload multiple images, and we have to set various keys in Firebase, and we want like kind of one completion block for all of it. Uh, which is a perfect use case for promises, but promises and Objective C don't get along so great because they don't have really good generics and they don't um, they like the the brackets make life kind of tough. Um, but like the way I was doing it before was dispatch groups and the dispatch groups were real hairy and I was like I can't I can't keep doing this dispatch group thing anymore. So uh, pretty much what I did is I ported my Swift promise library over to Objective C. Okay, wow, that is not where I was expecting you to go with this. <laughs> yeah, um, it does make the code marginally better. It would be even better if it were Swift because, um, like I said, I mentioned that the, the, the generics and the bracket syntax are not uh, great. You, you mean, let me, let me interject, it makes the code that is using promises better than it was before. Right, exactly. Okay. And it makes the... It does. There's a couple of interesting changes. One is you no longer have the nice like state machine enum that backs the promise, and so the way that that works now is it's one ID property, and it's either nil, which means it's pending, an error, which means it's failed, or anything else means it's succeeded. So that's not great. Yeah, but works. And then um, the other weird thing is, you can't really type overload in Objective-C. So you can't say, 
this message when you pass it this type behaves differently than the same message when you pass it a different type. What do you mean exactly? Like, if anything, you have more flexibility to vary things between types than Objective-C. Well, but you can't do two, like, method implementations. So the, 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 the case here is then, right? Um, the way I have it set up in uh, Swift is there's a method called then. When you call, you call then with a block, and depending on what that block returns, de- determines which implementation of then you'll get. And there's three possible implementations. In Objective-C, you can't re-implement that same message with different types. Right? I, I, I got to say, I'm not totally... I, I don't think I'm totally following what you're saying. Okay. So, like, uh, in Swift, you could write, like, handle um, a person object, and, like, a function called handle that takes one parameter that is, like, an underbar parameter, so it has no label. Just handle, and then it takes a person, and then a handle, and it takes, like, a location. Oh. And you can implement both of those methods yeah. side by side. Mm-hmm. And then the static picker, like, the method picker, the dispatch tables or whatever they are, picks which one it is at compile time, which one that message will go to, because it knows what the type is. And that, if I'm not wrong, is called overloading, Right. Yeah, no, okay, I'm sorry. I understand what you're saying now. Yeah, so in in Swift, I have three then methods that are each overloaded, depending on what you pass them. But in Objective-C, you can't do that. So I have one then method, and depending on what you pass it, it, like, switches dynamically. So if you return nil, it does nothing. If you return an object, it basically performs a map on the internal contents of the promise. And then if you return another promise, it will actually flat map that promise. I mean, that seems like the most straightforward Objective-C way to do that. Yeah, pretty um, much. <laughs> okay. Uh, and right, you kind of touched on how Objective-C's lack of generics and more uh, bracket-heavy syntax probably makes this a little bit... Oh, and block syntax, I guess. Yeah, oh, probably block syntax this... is so bad, Chris. Especially with the new like n- nullable, non-nullable uh, like, Ooh, annotations. Yeah. That's it's gonna be... so bad. That's going to be pretty heavyweight. Yeah, it's not great. The, the compiler will walk you through what you need to do for those, but like, ugh, not great. Yeah. And the brackets, I mean, you did a lot of reactive cocoa and Objective-C, so you know how bad the brackets are. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. It's not pretty. Gotta say, yep. it, reactive programming promises much prettier in Swift. Way prettier. Um, and then the, the generics are really like a, a suggestion. They're honestly just a suggestion. They're not really type-checked in any way. Oh, yeah. You definitely can't do anything meaningful, like uh, take an array of promises and turn it into a promise of an array. Mm-hmm. Like like the promise.all method. Yeah. Um, so it's the, the, the generics are just barely a hint. I mean, honestly, they're not really. Back really in my day, we didn't even have Objective-C lightweight <laughs> generics. You go uphill yeah. both ways. Um, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I bet it was even worse. Yeah. Um, I guess maybe it wasn't because you kind of just had to know. I mean, that is by definition worse, yeah. Well, but but if, it's like a false sense of security with Objective-C's lightweight generics. You think you know what's in there, but you don't actually. Oh, that's better than what, what how else are you going to communicate that? Comments? Yeah, it's not great. Yeah, there's no, no good solutions. Uh, are there any positive parts to rewriting this in Swift? Is there any... Um, and any positive takeaways? So, uh, uh, rewriting Objective-C? Excuse me, yeah, I'm sorry. Re- yeah, rewriting yeah. Objective-C. Yeah, um, well, the positives are I get to use promises. Like, I don't have okay. to deal with... Yeah, so before, what I would have to do is, let's say, like, 
one of these, um, it has a concept of like uploading a report. So when you upload a report, you have to set one key in Firebase for a title. You have to upload each individual image. You have to upload the metadata for each individual image. And, um, and then like later, if we wanted to have you be able to like set a date or any other property you'd have to do is actually a separate request over the like, um, over Firebase basically. So before I basically had to have a dispatch group enter and a dispatch group leave for each one of those completion block asynchronous calls. And if you leave out the leave or you leave out the enter, it's all just really very brittle, right? Mm -hmm. So now I could just do a promise.all. I can like return promise.all and then put all the tasks that need to happen right there. And then I'm just guaranteed that as long as I put the thing in that promise.all, all of those things will be completed and I'll get one completion block and I'm guaranteed to get it and it's guaranteed to be thread safe. Yeah. Yeah. So much, much simpler in terms of implementation. Why did you choose to rewrite your own promise library rather than using an existing promise library for Objective-C? Yeah. So um, I think there, I, I think it's mostly because I have like a very not invented here mentality, um, if I'm totally honest. Uh, but it's the same reason I wrote my own Swift um, promise library. Just because like, I had a certain way that I wanted it to look and work, and nothing that was out there worked in that way. Um, and uh, like, I just wanted to be able to tailor it to my own thing. The whole thing took about two or three hours to port. Not too bad. Okay. Um, yeah, so I was... I didn't feel like I'd like really wasted a lot of time. And then I, I actually initially started with um, a promise library called BA Promise, and um, tried to like kind of Re rejigger that to make it work really nicely with what I was trying to do, mm-hmm. um, and it like it wasn't cooperating. And it, I basically spent thirty minutes on that, got nowhere, and I was like, you know, I'm just gonna write this myself. Okay, and wrote it, and it like you know, um, really wasn't wasn't terrible. wasn't the worst thing in the world. Um, I also looked at Promise Kit, but Promise Kit, when you call it from Objective C, you're actually calling through a translation layer that just calls the Swift version. So you have to include the Swift version. And I go back versions in Promise Kit, but then I feel like I'm just using outdated code with a bunch of cruft that I still don't care about. So sure. I was just like, whatever, I'm just going to just write this thing. And I think um, there's that paper or whatever that I love, which is like if you need to rewrite more than 25% of something, you probably are, or if you need to touch more than 25% of something, you're probably better off just rewriting it. Mm-hmm. Um, which those results were drawn from like Fortran from like 40 years ago. So maybe they don't apply to modern day, but it feels like they apply. Um, and so like, if I have to edit something way, way too much, I'll just be like, whatever, I'll just rewrite it myself. <laughs> um, and you okay. get exactly what you want out of the out of that bargain. Sure, yeah, okay. Uh, as long as you rewrote this, let's see, I had a couple questions. Uh, what's the test coverage like on the Objective-C version? Yeah, so I'm not happy about that part. There's zero test coverage. Do you plan and this uh, this kind of ties into my next question? Uh, do you have plans to improve that, or uh, is this kind of going to sit as it is for a while? I'm open to it. Um, the thing is, right now, I know the state of the code works. Yeah, I, I, and I have a set of Swift tests that I could um, basically port over, and I think that would be an effective test uh, test library test suite. Yeah, um, it's just a matter of finding the time and. If I have basically, if I have the need to refactor the thing or add an extra feature where I'm like, is this just going to break everything? At that point, I would port over the tests, make sure they all pass. Probably I'll find some that actually fail and then fix those and then add my new feature or do my refactoring with confidence. 
How, I was going to say, how do you know that the current state of the code works? I mean, just from like queuing the app. But no, I know what you mean. I yeah. know what you mean. And I'm clearly exactly. being a little bit, um, a, a little bit pedantic here. But uh, so the other thing I was going to ask was, um, what are your plans for maintenance? Like your Swift Promise Library is open source. I've seen you uh, like merging pull requests that people open. Are you planning to like maintain the Objective C version and and accept, uh, or is it open source at all? So uh, there is a gist. I'm not sure if I've open sourced it. Um, I will open source a gist. It is open source. Okay. Uh, there's a gist. I'll put it in the show notes, um, and I'll try to keep it updated. But I think the gist is nice because it's like there's no real guarantee here. There's no issue tracking. There's no anything. But if you want this code, it is here. Yeah. If there's a gist, um, I'm guessing you're not super committed to taking pull requests. No, and the thing is, like, I do want to be forward-looking as opposed to past-looking, but at the same time, like, I just, there's no benefit to keeping this closed source. Yeah. And not, not letting other people look at it. And if they have the same sensibilities and tastes as me, uh, which is that, you know, um, my Swift Promise library is, like, the whole thing is under, like, 300 lines or something like that. This one is also under 300 lines, although not as full-featured. Um, and if you have the same sensibilities as me and you want something that you really understand, mm-hmm. uh, this may be, like, this may be something for you to, for you to take a look at. Okay. Cool. So it's out there, um, but uh, I don't plan on like maintaining it. I think it's out of features to it. I will add what I need to it. Um, and if somebody else wants to take it and run with it, great. But like this is this is about where I'm happy to leave it. Uh, this occurs to me. This is something that um, you don't have to answer if you don't want to. Is it adding even a 300 line promise library to an app that you're just contracting on and then handing it off to someone else? Is uh, you're not it's not like a standard iOS API and presumably this is becoming a fairly major part of the app is uh is this something that you think is uh is okay for you to to do as a contractor to add like some to add something like this and and then hand it off to whoever's going to maintain it for uh you know whoever's responsibility is that ne- it is next yeah that's a really fair point I, and I don't yeah. I, I don't know if I have a good. Well, I don't. You're know. not wrong. I, I yeah. So so part of it is that I do want a really long term relationship with this with this client. Um, so much so that like I would consider taking a like more not as like a full time thing, but I would consider taking a more serious role with them. Um, whether it's you know, but yeah, I, I definitely really like this is an important client. Um, in terms of the stuff that they work on. And I do want to be a part of the project long term. That being said, you can never predict right. um, how how long you'll be with something. So I think um, maybe a little documentation, a little test might go a long way. Mm-hmm. But that being said, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe that is something I should I should put some effort into just to make sure that like someone understands how this thing works. That that kind of feels like it may be good because I know that was yeah. always an objection to or a common objection to introducing reactive programming into a code base. Right, and promises are uh, are. Is certainly easier than than reactive programming to wrap your head around, but well, but there's also less written about them. Is the other part of it less written about reactive programming? No, no, no. Reactive programming has much more, many more like explainers, uh, tutorials. Oh, that can um, be a, a, a curse or a benefit. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But um, I feel like there's just not as much like really good, rich promise stuff. At least in our community, JavaScript has a little bit better stuff. But mm-hmm. in our community, like if you're like, okay, what's a promise? You might be searching in the woods for a little while. Well, it's like a reactive signal, but it only fires once. Right. So go learn all this reactive <laughs> stuff and then come back and then you'll understand this. <laughs> but yeah, so 
No, that's a fair point. I think I will add some documentation around. What is this thing? Why do we like it? Why do we use it? Yeah. Um, I think that would be, that that would probably be wise. Um, yeah, I think that's a fair, fair, very fair point. If you don't mind, I just had uh, some other questions that have come to mind about... Yeah, lay them on me. Uh, maybe not your promises library, but about the constraints that you have in this app. Mm-hmm. So Swift Runtime is out because it's too big. What else is out because it's too big? Uh, and specifically, what are you doing for resources are using something like paint code what are you doing for uh for third-party libraries are, is there anything that you would like to pull in but you're not using because it's it's too big yeah so um i need to do like a really rigorous analysis of what is actually causing the space like right now the app is um about eight megabytes so it's not small but it's also not big. Like it's smaller than it would be if it had any Swift in it at all. Yeah. Uh, but that being said, I think there's a ton of room for improvement. So I'm thinking, so assets right now are uh, just PNGs of, of multiple sizes, but I think they will be paint code very soon. Um, especially once we're, like, we're ready to like do a broader release, we'll like do an analysis of all this stuff. Okay. Um, it's just that you can't, you can pretty easily go from PNG to either PDF or paint code or whatever, but you can't really easily go from I'm using Swift to now I'm not using Swift. Absolutely. Uh, a note about PDFs. Doesn't, don't PDFs end up being rendered out to PNG during the build process anyway? I'm glad you asked. Um, yes, they do as of iOS 10 and earlier, but as of iOS 11 and later, they now are actually shipped in the app bundle and the rendering is done at runtime. Oh, neat. Is this an iOS yeah. change that I just missed because uh, I wasn't paying close attention to DubDub? Yep. Cool. That's really good to hear. Uh, Isn't that great? I assume that this app, especially given the areas where you're trying to deploy it, probably isn't targeting iOS 11 exclusively. That's right. That's exactly right. So you're going to be looking at paint code or generally at uh, programmatic drawing instead of uh, PNGs. Yes, exactly. Yeah, programmatic drawing, probably paint code. The designer I'm working with is already, he like, I showed him paint code and he went crazy. He was like, this is awesome. And so he went and bought it already. Um, so we use that for all of our assets. Nice. Um, maybe we'll use like one of those font awesome type things if we need it. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, yeah. So then there's a bunch of other considerations. Like basically this is a, um, it's an app pretty much where, uh, people on the ground in either disaster stricken or war torn areas can use it to assess either sites or buildings or artifacts, uh, that have like historical value that can't necessarily be moved because like, let's say ISIS is in Syria. Um, I think this is the first time we talked about ISIS on this podcast. Yeah. And so (laughs) I think so. And so like, basically, uh, people will be taking pictures of this and building reports, um, and assessments around like how dangerous they think the area is, um, how much something needs to be extracted, like how much, um, how, how worrisome like the current situation is in terms of like, will be destroyed soon. And it also provides sort of a paper trail for people uh, like that Hobby Lobby CEO who are like trying to take treasures and, and, and uh, artifacts and stuff out of that area oh. and actually are probably funneling money into ISIS while they do it. Um, so it provides like basically a, a paper trail to like kind of be able to track down like what exactly is going on. So that's the goal of the app. So, one interesting thing is we need to be able to upload like really big pictures. Um, this is another and, thing I was going to, I just have so yeah. many questions. Yeah. It's, a, it's a super interesting problem. So, right. Let's go right to image handling and more generally like network traffic. What are you doing to, so let's say you can download the app fine. What are you doing yep. to minimize network traffic? 
Yeah. So that, I think what we're, the way we're going to handle that, and this is TBD, like we need, there's a little bit of user research that needs to be done. Um, we just shipped the first version of it to the actual testers that are in the region. Um, and they'll be like, you know, shooting stuff in their backyard. Uh, but what I eventually want to do is I want to make the, um, report publishing, which is the primary like offline thing or like online thing that you need to do, be able to do. I want to make it really transparent exactly how it works so that you can see like, oh, this image is uploading. How fast is this image uploading? Like how long is this going to take? Um, and then I also want to be able to basically uh, have, have triggers for like, oh, this is on Wi-Fi or like we're waiting for Wi-Fi so that you can go to Wi-Fi and say, okay, and now at this point, upload this report. Okay. Basically, so, give the power to the users without necessarily removing any of the quality. Because the quality is really important, especially if you're doing like actual um, mm-hmm. analysis and stuff on this. So you could upload thumbnails first and then upload um, full resolution. There's some things we're playing with, but there's also this whole like MVP thing we got to fight with, which right. is like it's one developer and we got a pretty full feature thing we want to build. Interesting. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, one thing that I mentioned earlier that we didn't get to are there third-party libraries that are that I know you mentioned Firebase? Are there others that you would like to pull in, but um, you haven't been able to? Yeah, um, I'm pretty anti-third-party library in the first place. So, like when we were working on Urban Archive, I think the first third-party library that we pulled in was Mixpanel, just because there's no other way to do Mixpanel. Um, but we built our own networking stack. We built our own um, image loading. We built our own. Uh, persistence. We built everything ourselves. Um, at this point, I think we have like, you know, some kind of bug reporting thing. We have some kind of, I think we use map, uh, map box now. So we pull that in, but like in the early days, a lot of that stuff, I don't really think is necessary. We built our own JSON parsing. And so for this app, the only dependency we're really reliant on is Firebase. And we just dragged in Firebase manually. Um, there's no Cocoa pods. There's no, uh, nothing like that. Okay. Yeah. So no Carthage and no, like, especially, you know, one of the other concerns of bringing in a promise library was like, it might pull in code that I'm not going to, I'll compile, but I won't need. And so like just not having a library at all. Yeah. And I don't know if there's any overhead to like CocoaPods is like bundling and, and building frameworks and stuff for you. So, but I won't have to worry about any of that. So be yeah. nice. With CocoaPods specifically, I think there's very little overhead in the actual thing that you deploy and at runtime, but uh, right, it's good to think about this. Yeah, and Bitcode is another thing that's worth thinking about. It's like if, if Apple can do the slicing for us and and cut yeah. out the irrelevant segments of the app, then even better. Absolutely. Yeah. One thing I am worried about is like, especially if the latency is really bad, even setting one key in Firebase, that's like one full round trip network request. So if you set 10 keys, I don't, know if, I don't know if Firebase does intelligent stuff around like, okay, well, when should I send these? Should I batch these? Et cetera. Um, but that's, you know, that's kind of, you got to dance with the, the, the one that brought you or whatever. Yeah. 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 I mean, at least hopefully that sort of thing should be a fairly small amount of data, even if it's high latency. Yeah. yeah. And hopefully the Firebase library under the hood will deal with transient network. Some problems. kind of batching and something. Yeah. 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 Huh. It's an interesting set of problems and maybe we'll talk to the people and they'll be like, yeah, RLT is fine. And you know, you're worrying about nothing. Just go ahead and go nuts. Yeah. And maybe we will at that point, but have you gotten any feedback about actual network conditions from, uh, users in, in these areas yet? I haven't talked to users, but I have talked to like the stakeholders. And so that's where I get my, my sort of picture from, but yeah, it could be if we actually talk to them, they'll say like, Hey, not a concern. This is all. So it occurs to me, this is all stuff that, I mean, maybe not 
most most iOS apps maybe aren't written to target such an extreme environment specifically. Right. But it's definitely something good to keep in mind, regardless of what you're working on, right? We know yeah. that people in you know, like war-torn areas of Syria are using, for example, Twitter for communication. And uh, I'm guessing that the, the folks who, who work on the Twitter app um, probably aren't thinking about this stuff day in and day out. Yeah. Right? You would, yeah, and you would think that, like, you know, Twitter is a really unique case of, it would be really cool if they built two versions of the app. One's, like, Twitter Lite that doesn't have any of the stupid crap in it and is, like, a super small version of the app that just allows, you know, reading your timeline and posting and maybe DMs. Um, right. But doesn't need to doesn't need to worry about like open graph or doesn't need to worry about any of that extra stuff, and it could be really valuable in places like that. It's to me, it's like you know, you the technology is downstream from the product, and the product is downstream from the use cases. So your use cases and ultimately like what that audience is determines what product you build, and that determines mm-hmm. what technology you need to use to build it. Um, that being said, there's one other big thing here that we're kind of not talking about, which is that this is an iPhone app and it probably should be an Android app. Well, so I, I didn't know if I wanted to ask this, but why is this not a web page, like a web service? Uh, definitely can't be a web page. Um, we, so, so the way that the experience works right now is it's kind of like Snapchat in that when you open it, it drops you right into the camera. So the idea is you don't know how long you can be in this dangerous area um, especially if there's like rubble that could be falling, if it's like disaster stricken, like the Nepal mm-hmm. earthquake is one of the use cases we've been talking about, like real, real shit. So like making sure that the app is quick to get in and out of is like super, super important. Um, and so for that, we want to make sure that like, uh, assessing is quick, taking pictures is quick. Um, like getting in and out is like super, super fast. So that's, and then like, yeah, so that, that's kind of why, why it's an app and not a web page. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And then, um, I think it will end up be, needing to be an Android app at some point. So we'll see how that part of it shakes out. Yeah. It does seem like having both, both major yeah. platforms covered. Would well, be- and the Android thing also is dependent on a little bit of user research. Cause like, I know you can't just make an Android app and it just runs on everything. You have to like know what phones you want it to run on. And that determines like what technologies you can use and how old they can be and like all of that stuff. So I mean, if, as long as you're planning basically to like take pictures and tag them with locations and upload them, like I don't yeah. think you're going to run into anything too too messy there, even on Android. Yeah, I don't think so. But I do want to make sure that like I actually target the phones of the people who are going to be using this because it also may end up being, you know, a hundred people could do a lot of good with this app in that area, especially if it's the right hundred people. Mm-hmm. So we don't really need a huge user base. And, and especially because of that, like if, you know, 60 of them have Android phones and, you know, 20 or 30 of those phones can't run Honeycomb or KitKat or whatever we're on, then like, what was the point of building the Android app? Like, we got to make sure that we build the right Android app. That's definitely something to keep in mind, but I haven't done professional Android stuff in years, but I really feel like for this application, that fragmentation is probably going to be less of an issue than you're than you're thinking. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping so. I'm hoping so. Android also has like their, um, uh, or at least when I was working on it, had the like support library that you could drop into your app that would bring uh, that would bring some like newer platform features to your app, even if it were running on old operating systems. Mm, interesting. Yeah, it, it was a pretty neat thing to be able to do. Uh, so yeah. I I wouldn't necessarily write this off too quickly. Yeah. Is all I'm going to say. 
Right. No, no, you're, you're not wrong. Um, but there's this, this product in particular, there's a lot of interesting choices and things to think about. Yeah. This sounds like a really fascinating project. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I'm, I'm excited to hear how it progresses. Yeah. Yeah. It should be good. It should be good. Yeah. So that, that's kind of what this project's been all about. Uh, that's why I rewrote my promise library in Objective-C for this, <laughs> for this interesting, weird use case. Um, you have any other questions or thoughts? Oh, there was one other thing I wanted to mention. Back when Swift was first coming out, uh, I put together a few Objective-C macros that brought a couple, uh, a couple Swifty things to Objective-C. And That's right. Didn't you do like an if let as kind of thing? Yeah. And I'm not going to say that. I want that. I'm not going to suggest that you actually use any of these, but, uh, as long as we're talking about going from Swift back to Objective-C, that may be fun to read through. <laughs> so it's actually really interesting. Um, I was doing basically JSON parsing because the way we store this data on disk, this metadata is just JSON um, instead of NS coding or whatever. And uh, I, I just wanted something really simple, which is I wanted to say, pull this item out of the dictionary if and only if it's a string. And there's actually not an easy way to do that in Objective-C. Well, I may have a macro for you. <laughs> yeah. So what I ended up doing, and you know, email me if you think this is terrible, but I added a method to NS object called as class uh, or nil. And basically you pass it NS string dot class and, or NS string space class brackets. And it'll return to you either something that matches that class or nil. And so what I'll do is I'll say dictionary, you know, subscript this key as class or nil, NS string class. Uh, and then I'll do the like uh, question mark colon operator, which is like, and if it's mm -hmm. nil, use this side. And I'll do like empty array. So that way I know it's never empty. So I have a few, in one of these gists, I have a few um, macros and a few NS object category methods that, yeah, send that them may over. be nice for you. Um, I definitely want to, want to see them. Yeah, here, let's, uh, so you have uh, as checked, which basically takes an expression and crashes if the expression isn't um, the type that you expect it to be. So that's your mm, as bang, like, right? As, as bang, nice. point. Cool. Uh, as option is like your as question mark. It returns nil or the uh, object if if the object is the right type. Nice. And then uh, there are, I also have those implemented as um, NS object category methods too. Ah, perfect. Yeah. yeah. This is basically exactly what I needed. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Great. On that note, stuff. that's yeah. everything that was on my list of stuff to discuss. Yeah, that's that's. Uh, I think that's a pretty solid episode. Cool. Great to talk to you as always. And yeah. thanks to the Patreon, Patreon people. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much uh, to all of you for your support. We really appreciate it. And Sarush, it's great talking to you. I'll talk to you next week. Sweet. Talk to you soon, Chris.